you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 1. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, that's going to be on page 807. 807. Uh, we are now uh, into the Christmas season, and I want to say Merry Christmas to you. As Pastor Chris mentioned, the ladies did a great job, uh, again, in the building and decorations, and we're so thankful for that. But as the, the calendar turns to December, you may have experienced this as well. Uh, the days of the month of December seem to go by more quickly than other months. Not sure exactly why that is, uh, but nevertheless, uh, some of the time, uh, for some of us, uh, the days seem to pass so quickly that we find it hard to even enjoy the time that we have. Uh, some of us want it to slow down. Some of us want, want to be able to enjoy uh, the, this, this, uh, these days and, and the holidays and the, all, all that come along uh, with it. Well, according to the traditional church, uh, Christian church calendar, uh, the four Sundays that precede Christmas uh, are known as Advent. Uh, Advent, uh, that, the word Advent means arrival or it means coming. And as it relates to the church and to Christianity, it, it's a time of, of reflection. It's a time of remembrance. It's a time of anticipation, anticipating uh, once again, the arrival, the, the, the coming, the advent of Christ at Christmas. So what, what Lent is to Easter, Advent is to Christmas. A, a season of preparation, a season of, of anticipation. It's not just about you know, our, our holiday parties. It's about preparing our hearts and readying our hearts to celebrate the birth of Jesus. And whereas Christ has already come, yes and amen. We're not remembering, uh, we're not forecasting something that, that's going to happen. It already has happened. We know that it's already happened. Uh, Christmas is the celebration of that coming, of his birth. But it is a good practice for us to take time every year, and more than just once a year, but at this time, to contemplate uh, to remember again, to anticipate again the arrival of Jesus, the advent of Jesus. And in an effort to do that, over the next four Sundays, we will look at what each of the gospel writers have to say about the birth of Jesus, about the advent of Jesus. In the book of Mark, we'll see the advent of the Son of God. In the book of John, we'll see the advent of the Word. In the book of Luke, we'll see the advent of the Savior. But this week, as we look at the book of Matthew, we'll see the advent of the King. The Gospel of Matthew, we know, was primarily written to Jews in order to proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah King who fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies. That's what what Matthew was after. He, he uses in chapter one, he uses genealogies, a list of, of the begats, we might say, to prove that Jesus ha had a rightful place. He had rights to, or a right to, the throne of David, which we'll talk about in just a moment. And, and he used throughout his book 19 different Old Testament prophecies of or about Jesus to show how Jesus fulfilled those prophecies. We won't look at all 19 of those this morning. 
Here in just chapters 1 and 2, Matthew quotes from four different prophets. Isaiah, Micah, Hosea, and Jeremiah. What is Matthew's point? Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises. The one that they had been waiting for had come in the person of Jesus. After hundreds of years of silence, when the Old Testament closed, when the last revelation was given to the prophets in the Old Testament, from that point until the New Testament, until God once again spoke, there were hundreds of years of silence. And God broke that silence with the birth of his own son, Jesus. Matthew chapter 1 and 2 describe the birth of Jesus in the subsequent events. What we want to look at this morning in these two chapters is how we can see the identity of Jesus revealed and the responses of Jesus that we are to consider. First, the identity of Jesus We won't read through verses 1 through 17, but in verses 1 through 17, we see a a genealogy, not a complete genealogy, but a genealogy of Jesus. It's of, of how Jesus tracks all the way back to particularly, Matthew makes the point, look at verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew is drawing the conclusion or, or helping uh, his, his readers to see how Jesus, the line of Jesus, goes all the way back, all the way back to David and all the way back to Abraham, the son of Abraham. We've been studying through the book of Genesis, and in Genesis chapter 12, God makes a covenant with Abraham. He makes a covenant with Abraham that through his offspring, all the world will be blessed. And who is that ultimate offspring but Jesus himself? Here Matthew calls Jesus the son of David, which is a a repeated title for Jesus, but the son of David, which connects Jesus to the throne of David. Now that might not matter to you, but in the Old Testament, that's important. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, we see God's covenant with David. And Nathan, the prophet, says this to David, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Jesus is the fulfillment of that covenant. Not only do we see Uh, Jesus' identity here in the genealogies, but we see it in the record of his birth in verses 18 and following. Chapter 1, verses 18, you can follow there. says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quickly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Then he refers to Isaiah 7. 
14, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, just in these few verses, we can see several things about the identity of this, this son or this child. First off, in verse 18, the birth of Jesus Christ. The word Christ is used there. It's used also in verse 1, and it's used in chapter 2, verse 4. <clears throat> the Christ is, is not a name. It's a title. And the title is the Greek form of the word that we know of Messiah. Here in Matthew, Matthew is helping his readers understand that this is the promised one. This is the anointed one. This is the one. This is the seed. This is the promise. This is the one that the Old Testament talked about. He has come. Here he is. Jesus Christ or Jesus the Christ. We also see here something different about this child. This child was from the Holy Spirit, verse 18 says, or conceived from the Holy Spirit in verse 25. This is to confirm that, the, that God was involved here in the absence of Joseph or any other man. It was the Holy Spirit who conceived Jesus in Mary, which was necessary. It was absolutely necessary in order for, for Mary to have, have been uh, to conceive without a man. God had to be involved clearly. With God, all things are possible. In verse 21, we read that this child would be a son whose name would be Jesus. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. And finally, in, in using Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14, uh, that's verse 23 in Matthew chapter 1, we see this title given of Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now Matthew is, is giving to the reader the identity of this child. It's not just a child. It's not just a good, a good child. It's not, even, it's not just as a prophet or a teacher. No, this is the Christ. The Christ born from the Holy Spirit. Jesus, who would save. Emmanuel, that is God, who is with us. Matthew went on to emphasize that this child, who is from God, who is the promised one, who is the savior, would also be the long-awaited king. We come into chapter two and we see uh, the story of the, the wise men. Now it's important for us to understand, look at verse one. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, uh, Herod the king. Uh, it's important for us to recognize, verse one says, now after the, Jesus was born in Bethlehem which indicates to us that, that this event took place uh, at a period of time later than the actual birth of Jesus, maybe several months. Uh, Jesus was not an infant at this time when the wise men came to Jerusalem, which is what the rest of verse 2 says. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. They came, and they came for a particular reason, asking, verse 2, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw a star when it rose, and we have come to worship. Here we have wise men from the east, or magi, or uh, who, who may have been uh, magicians, or astrologers, uh, students of the stars. Uh, they were not necessarily kings regardless of what your hymn, uh, Christmas Carol, uh, tells you. No, nor are we ever told that there were three of them, uh, regardless of what the Christmas carols uh, or uh, 
nativity sets uh, may, may uh, lead us to, to believe. Uh, what we can know is that these were prominent men. They were high-ranking men with power and influence. Uh, they were well-respected in their roles uh, of religion and, and politics. They were apparently wealthy based on the gifts that they brought. They, they apparently had money. Uh, given their status and who they were, they probably were not traveling alone. They may have had a caravan even of, of people and uh, servants, etc. Uh, these men were uh, from the east, which means they were not Jews. They were non-Israelites. They were pagans who saw a star and followed it in order to worship who they called the king of the Jews, a title which would appear again at the crucifixion of Jesus. Herod here was troubled by the news. Um, he didn't really care to, to have another, another king uh, in his region. Look at it in verse 3. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Israel with, and all Jerusalem with him. There's another king. There's another king that's been born. In verse 4, in assembling... All the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where, Christ, where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Herod, concerned about this news, brings together the, the chief priests and the scribes to tell him what's going on. But we also know something about what Herod actually already knew or already believed. He called him the Christ. Herod already knew about this anointed one, about this coming one. And yet he brings these uh, men together and they tell him uh, a prophecy. And this prophecy in Chapter 6 was from the book of Micah, the prophet Micah, as well as from 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 2. There's kind of a merging of two, two, two quotes in verse 6. And what they, they say to him is that, yeah, this Christ is coming. And he's coming to Bethlehem. And he's going to be a ruler. That, that's what the prophets have said. That's true. We continue to read in our, uh, the Old Testament of other prophecies about this one. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 says, For unto us a child is born and a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. That he's going to rule. He's going to be a ruler. This was no ordinary birth. This was the promised seed, the line of David, a divine child, a ruler, uh, the long-awaited king. And just here in these verses, as we just read through them, we can pull out these, these few pieces of identity about who Jesus is. That he has been promised. Uh, prophecies from, from hundreds and hundreds of years ago about him are being fulfilled now in his birth. That he is the anointed one. He is the promised one. He is the Messiah. And he would come to rule. This is who Jesus is. And as we continue in chapter 2, after seeing his identity, now we want to question or, or understand what are the responses to this Jesus. Not only in chapter 2, but also in chapter 1, we see uh, responses. And it begins with Joseph. 
Back in chapter one, when Joseph hears about Jesus, we already read what Joseph was thinking about doing. Joseph finds that the woman he is betrothed to is, is going to have a baby that, that he has nothing to do with. That's a scandal. And so what is he going to do? He's going to divorce her quietly so as not to shame her anymore. He's going to put her away quietly, divorce her quietly. Um, but while he's considering that, the Lord comes to him. The angel of the Lord comes to him and tells him what's going on. And when he wakes up, look at verse 24, chapter 1, verse 24. And Joseph woke from sleep and he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Uh, what do we see here in Joseph's life but trust in the Lord and obedience? Trust and obedience. Joseph heard the angel of the Lord and trusted, trusted that what the angel of the Lord said was true, and then he did it. He did as it was commanded him. The end of verse 24. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. Joseph responded to the word. He responded to the announcement of Jesus with confidence in who was giving the word to him and obedience we must ask ourselves, how are we responding to God's word to us? God's word to us about this Jesus. And that this Jesus is the promised one. That this Jesus is the savior. That this Jesus is the king. How do, how do we respond to that? How are you responding to that? Are you trusting that that's true? Are you believing that? Are you obeying him? Are you obeying his word? Are you submitting yourselves to, to, to the word of God or are you going your own way? Joseph trusted and obeyed. As we come to chapter two, we, we see the response of the wise men. These men pictured uh, the worship of, of Jesus by the nations. We see that's a prophecy from Isaiah chapter 60. Remember, they're from the east. They're not Jews. And they're coming because they saw this star. They understand that it's pointing to something, someone. They come and they worship Jesus. They're giving Jesus their, their worship. That Jesus calls all nations to himself. Not just Jews. The Jews and Gentiles. And we see this to begin to be unfolded or furthered out from just Jerusalem. Even here in the Gospels, even here in Matthew chapter 2, as we'll continue to see the movement of the Gospel throughout the New Testament. David Platt says, we see how the nations would come drawn to the light of God's Son. That is true, isn't it? It's not just the, the, the light in the sky, but it's Jesus who is the light of the world that even the Gentiles would see and believe. Well, after meeting with Herod, they were again led by a star in verse 9. Then look at verse 10 of chapter 2. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going to the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. <clears throat> then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. When they had come to the place where Jesus was, they rejoiced. And then upon seeing Jesus, they worshipped him. And they worshipped him with, with gifts. They worshipped him by uh, falling down. Uh, this falling down was a, a, a physical posture that was um, 
an example of their inner hearts, right? of their spiritual hearts. And then they offer them this, this material expression. So not only is it a physical posture, not only is it their spiritual heart, but now they have a, a physical or a, a material possession of offering gifts, gifts that were fit for a king. We won't go into each of those gifts this morning, but they were superior gifts, gifts that, that only you would give to a king. But upon seeing Jesus, what did they do? They fell down and they worshiped him. They fell down and they worshiped. They, 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 they took joy in seeing Jesus. And the announcement of Jesus brought joy into their life. We ask ourselves, how do we respond to Jesus? How do we respond to Jesus? Some of us get joyful about this time of year because we like lights and we like parties and we like gifts and we like family time. We, we take joy in those things. But what about Jesus? Imagine that. Imagine that we take joy in Jesus during the Christmas season. Well, not only do we see here in these verses Joseph's response and the wise men's response, but we also see the response of Herod. In verse 3, it says that when Herod, the king, heard this, that's the birth of Jesus, the king of the Jews, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. Herod didn't want another king to rival him in any way. Herod was, was uh, Herod the Great. He was an Edomite and known for falsehood and cruelty, which we'll see in just a moment. And yet the coming of the Messiah meant Herod's rule was in jeopardy, or so he thought. So when Herod hears about this, he, he is troubled, he's agitated, he's stirred up, he's in turmoil because the king of the Jews had been born. And this new king was a threat to Herod, or so he thought, and so he had to be eliminated. Herod inquired of the religious leaders. We saw that already in uh, verse, uh, verse 6. Uh, they told him about this Christ. He talked to the wise men about when did they see the star and what did they know as well. They offered the location of the birth, being in Bethlehem, of course. And the wise men talked about this star. Herod says to them, when you find him, let me know where he's at, because I'd like to come and worship him too. And no one, no one actually believes that. And, and certainly the, the, the wise men did not believe that either. But look at verse 16. It says that when Herod, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And the wise men didn't report back. They actually went home a different way, not going back through Jerusalem. They didn't, they didn't, they didn't fall for his his lie. So Herod became agitated. He was fearful, which led to him rejecting Jesus. And in anger, what did he want to do? He wanted to kill the king. So Herod calls for a killing spree on all the male children in Bethlehem, ages two and under. This would, he thought, eliminate the possibility of any child king ever threatening his throne. And yet his plan failed as God protected Jesus, divinely warning Joseph to flee to Egypt. We can read that in verses 13 and through 15. But here's the reality. 
Herod still had children killed. Many children died because of Herod's lust for power and his idolatry. Yet God saved his son from Herod in order that he would give hope and comfort in the midst of loss through Jesus' life and his ultimate death and resurrection. But Herod was so concerned about protecting his own kingdom, right, his own power, that he was willing, just imagine this, he was willing to eliminate any threat, real or perceived, adult or child, in order to keep what he wanted. We might think that's crazy. Who would ever do such a thing? Who would ever go to that great extent to keep what they want? Yet the book of James tells us in chapter 4 that why, why there are quarrels among you is because we want something and we're not getting it. And so people fight. James goes on to say that people will even murder because they're not getting what they want. As crazy as it might sound that Herod would do that, it is actually the disposition of the natural man. Our natural heart is bent that way. That if, if I can't get what I want, I will take whoever is the obstacle out in order to get it. That is the natural indication, in, uh, the natural way of the heart apart from Christ. Herod was not a good man. He, he, even, he not only would he kill these children, he killed his own children. In fact, he, in, tradition says that he killed three of his own sons. He was not a good man. So this, this idea of killing an infant uh, or small children doesn't seem actually that unbelievable if you're Herod. But Matthew Henry points out that Herod was 70 years old at this point. So an infant who was going to be king was not actually a threat. Right? Not actually. He wasn't actually going to take the throne away. That Herod would, would have died before this, this infant would ever have come to any sort of power. And yet what? The idol of Herod's heart was so great because what he valued was being threatened. Listen, we know we have an idol. You can know that you have an idol when you will sin to protect it. What is an idol? An idol is anything that you value above God. It can be a good thing. It can be a spouse. It can be your family. It can be your reputation. It can be money. It can be your job. It can be anything. Anything that you value more than God. Anything that, that you take and make it the ultimate thing, that's an idol. And you can know it's an idol if you will sin to get it, to keep it, or to protect it. Here is, that's exactly what Herod is doing. He has an idol of power, an idol, idol that, that he, uh, of a position that he is uh, feeling threatened, and therefore he will take out anybody who is in his way. Herod's reaction or his response to Jesus was fear and rejection. Now, we might not be killing anybody uh, today. Hopefully, you're not. But some of us do respond to Jesus with fear and rejection. And we fear, what does that mean? What does it mean for Jesus to be king? What does it mean for, for him to rule? What does it mean for me? If he's my savior, I'm, I'm now indebted to him. Now I have to follow him. Now I have to do what he has to say. Some of us don't want for there to be another God. We want to be the God. We want to call 
the shots. The coming of Jesus, the king, confronts us as it demands for us to respond to Jesus. You have to respond to Jesus. It demands for us to to examine who and what we worship. Listen, if you see Jesus as a threat to your life, you will seek to eliminate him. Whether it's those people around you who talk about Jesus or whether it's any sort of influence or any sort of recognition of him, you'll seek to eliminate it. But if you see Jesus as the giver of life, then you will worship him. So the question remains, what will you do with Jesus? How will you respond? The late Timothy Keller writes this, either you will have to kill Jesus or you will have to crown him But the one thing you can't do is just say, what an interesting guy. His claims do not allow that type of answer. Even in Matthew chapter 1, we see who this Jesus is. And if that's true, and it is, then we can't just say, well, that's, Jesus is a nice guy. He's a a good teacher. He said really nice things. No, no, no. If he is the ruler, if he is the king, if he is the savior, if he is the, the anointed one, then we have to deal with it. We, we, we will either kill him, we'll either eliminate him, or we will crown him. Well, what does it mean to crown him? It means to acknowledge and to recognize him as king. It doesn't mean to make him king. Sometimes you say, I'm going to make the, Jesus the Lord of my life or the king of my life. You're not making Jesus anything. Jesus is king, whether you believe it or not. We're recognizing that he's king. We're putting ourselves under his authority, yes, willfully. But the scriptures tell us that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Everyone will one day recognize it. The question is, do you recognize it now? The wise men did. They came and they saw this baby in a manger and they realized that he was the king of the Jews. They they fell on their knee in worship. To crown him means to worship him as the only one worthy of worship. To submit ourselves to him in obedience to his word. And the one way you can know if you're crowning Jesus is are you living in obedience to his word? Have you submitted yourself to Jesus? No one wants to run around and say, I'm actually in the second category of killing Jesus. No one wants to say that. But only those who are submitting themselves to God can say, I'm crowning him as king. And the proof that you're crowning him is the evidence of your life. So will you crown him or will you kill him? Now, clearly, Timothy Keller does not mean kill in a literal sense. Thus, the quotation around kill. He's not physically talking about killing. Obviously, Jesus is alive. Uh, you can't kill him anymore. They already did that, but he's, he's alive now. So the killing here doesn't mean taking his life. It means eliminating him. It means resisting him. It means ignoring him. It means disbelief. It means dismissal of him and his word. In a sense, we are killing Jesus if we act in unbelief, if we willfully reject him, say that we don't need him, don't want him. It happens when we try to play God and attempt to take control. And here we see Herod trying this move. But guess what happened to Herod one day? Herod died. 
You know what death proves? That you're not God. Herod wanted to make himself a God. Gods don't die. Herod died. Herod is still dead. In his rejection, in his unbelief, he experienced the judgment and continual separation of God as he does today. These are the real and eternal consequences to how we answer the question of what will we do with Jesus? That's the question. That's the question that, that, that Christmas demands of us. What do we do with this person? Jesus is a historical figure. No one can, can, no one can honestly or intellectually debate that reality. The Bible is clear about who Jesus is. So now we have to say, what, what am I going to do with that? Am I going to believe that? Am I going to put myself under the authority of Jesus? Am I going to repent of my sins and believe on him as the Bible commands us to? Or am I going to go my own way? The season of Advent reminds us that, that Christ has come and why he has come. Advent and Christmas are not only about the birth of Jesus, but also about why he came. Look back to chapter 1, verse 21. The angel says, She, talking about Mary, will bear a son, and you, Joseph, shall call his name Jesus, for he, Jesus, will save his people from their sins. Even here, at the birth of Christ, we're already looking forward to why Jesus came. It's not just a birth that, that makes us feel good. It's not just new life. No, no, no. It is about salvation. It's about salvation from sins. There is no Easter without Christmas. Christ came to save his people from their sins. Jesus did so by giving his life, Matthew chapter 20, verse 28 says, as a ransom for many, as a payment for many. The king has come, and the king came to die. To die. He wasn't only born for you. He died for you. This is what Christmas tells us. That he would die. The king would die. And it's in the symbols of the bread, representing the body of Christ. And the cup, representing the blood of Christ, that we see again God's great love for us. As his only begotten son, the son of David, the Messiah King was not only born for us, but died for us. His body pierced for us, for our transgressions. His blood shed for us, for the forgiveness of our sins. Christ has come. The question is, what will you do with Jesus? Oh God